Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. What's up, everybody? Our story begins with a crash. Not that crash, actually the crash of 1987. Black Monday, when Wall Street collapsed and the repercussions were felt around the world and on the street below. What they don't know is they're about to cause one of the biggest catastrophes on Wall Street since the Great Depression. But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's rewind one year. But I'll come back to that. Now, Mo just needs to, one, trick Blair into joining the Jammer Group with a little bump, two, screw over the Lehman Brothers, who are in serious need of some family therapy, and four, weaponize Blair for a hostile takeover of Georgina Jeans, and bam, get stupid rich. Sounds easy, right? Oh, that reminds me. The Yakuza's after Mo. Peace may be working for the FBI. Blair totally found out about Mo's plan and is super pissed. Dawn is scheming oh. with Blair to double cross the double cross her Mo and leave him with nada. Ah, uh, what am I forgetting? Oh, remember Blair's algorithm that never worked? Well, he figured it out just in time to crash the entire market, which brings us back to. When it's all over, the market is crashed, the limbo is smashed, Wall Street is crashed, and now what? Mo's on the run, and the madness has only just begun. And those were scenes from the Wall Street Noir TV series Black Monday that No Laughing Matter satirical take on exactly what went down during the October 1987 stock market crash, or even maybe not. And one of the stars of the show who plays Chad, stage and screen actor Michael James Scott, is our guest this week on Arts Express, along with Adrian Walker. And they'll be talking about very different productions they're involved in, the return to the Broadway stage with the reopening of those theaters following the shutdowns due to the pandemic, Scott as the genie in Aladdin, and Walker portraying the lioness Nala in The Lion King, coming up on the show. But first, on the subject of work, there's a new film just out about how a different national culture can define work, and with it the plight of workers. Salaryman is a documentary premiering at the Doc L.A. Film Festival, exploring the plight of overworked white-collar office employees in Japan, and directed by first-time Costa Rican, U.S.-based filmmaker Allegra Pacheco. And in a case of apparent unquestioned mass devotion to their companies, these workers may be driven to mental illness and suicide, even as their hours are so long that it's common for them to be found on the city streets sleeping until morning because there was not enough time to return home and which led Pacheco, as part of her film, to wander around Tokyo drawing those body chalk outlines around them as her designated crime scenes. And while working place trauma and death, as what just transpired with the Alec Baldwin film set Homicide happens here as well, in Japan, unlike the U.S., there's an actual Japanese word, Hiroshi, defined as being worked to death. As Pacheco points out, I doubt that little kids grow up saying, oh, I want to work in a cubicle. We did debate what's going on with this worker exploitation, Allegra favoring the word collectivism, while I viewed this reality as tribalism. And with an absence in her film of what would normally be deemed collectivism, that is, workers banding together to protest and strike against companies, unionism that was destroyed in Japan following World War II, by the U.S. occupation forces, privatization of government entities, and the Red Purge targeting the union movement in unity with communists. First, some scenes from Salaryman, then Allegra Pacheco. They go to the bar and drink a lot. It seems like they're releasing their stress, but in fact, Drinking too much is one of the big reasons why they're so stressed. I got depression because of the stress in my company. My company didn't allow me to take a leave. Unfortunately, last month I got fired. This photo is a photo of my medicine. I started taking this 
uh, medicine because I got depression in my job. So I'm taking three pills. One for my anxiety. The other one is for making me positive. So the one is for sleeping. I've never woke up on the street like uh, other salarymen. But I think if I kept working in my company, someday I'm going to be one of them. When I first saw these men in suits just lying in the street, for a second, it looked like a murder scene, like a corporate murder. I saw something of myself in these men that reminded me of my work in New York. But I couldn't really place it because we're also so different. I'm not naive, I'm an outsider. I'm a woman, creating chalk outlines around these men who are at their most vulnerable. In a way, who am I to make meaning of their situation? But it all felt so normalized. I had to call attention to what I was seeing. I couldn't just look away. What intrigued you about the salarymen during your journey to Japan that led you to want to make a documentary about them as your first film as a director? What visually struck me at first was how they seemed like salarymen had a different, I don't know, they seemed like set apart from the rest of, of the people in that I saw in the streets, you know? First of all, they all wear suits. Uh, they have very specific, like, commute times. So, I don't know, it was just one of those things when you notice somebody or something and then you can't unsee it. I just started being passed out in the sidewalk and, and I learned that that was a normal thing. That really was what struck me. It made me, it made me really want to investigate further. And why do you see salarymen as specific to Japanese culture on the one hand and on the other hand possibly universal? I would say, again... You know, it's very cultural, but a very big thing in salaryman culture is individuality is not seen as a as a positive. It's more, the group is more important. And since that's the case, you know, in, in my exploration, I saw that often people put their own personal lives on hold and choose to do what's best for the company. And in some, in some cases, this is, you know, leads to overwork and even can lead to karoshi, which is death by overwork. Now, speaking of work, you're over there in L.A. at the film festival. What can you say about what's been going on with the workers' Hollywood strike? Well, to be honest, I don't know much about it since it was happening right around the planning of my screening. But I do know that, you know, people feel very overworked within the industry and having made just this one film, it rings very true. People work really intense hours and, you know, are often exhausted and do this back to back, you know, day after day. And I, I don't know, I can relate. I can relate. And your film characterizes the obsessive devotion to their jobs of the salarymen as the result of collectivism but I see it more as tribal in a society unlike our diverse culture that is a monolithic culture. What are your thoughts about that? And do you see possibly that tribalism as a fanatical devotion to Japanese military extremism that was seen in World War II? I would 
say those definitely are the roots, and I would say that in a in a certain degree that is explored in the movie when we when we mention, um, you know, the salaryman being a modern samurai. You know, a samurai culture does come from from tribalism at a later stage. You know, samurais emerge. Okay. I do agree that that to a certain degree it does come from from tribalism, but in Japan. Japan is an island, so it has different cultural characteristics mm. for for survival and success than bigger land masses. Okay, thank you so much, Allegra Pacheco, for calling into the show. Thank you so much for having me, Prairie. Okay, bye. Bye. And Salaryman is a production of Legs Limitada. And coming up next, you can be somebody who is more than just a character on stage but actually embodying joy and love, light and laughter. And that's a blessing, especially as a black man. Being able to take that on as an actor of color is really, really wonderful. That's Michael James Scott talking about the return to the stage with just reopened Broadway shows shut down by the pandemic and with Scott as the genie in Aladdin and joined on the program with Adrian Walker as Lioness Nala in The Lion King. Hi, good morning, Prairie. Hi. Hi, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now that Broadway shows have reopened again, what are each of you up to there? Well, good morning, Prairie. This is Adrian Walker. I play Nala in The Lion King on Broadway. And uh, I'm just grateful now that we're back and that I'm able to do what I love on stage every night with people that I love. Hi, Thank you for having us. It's Michael James Scott. And just as Adrian, the lovely Adrian Walker just said, it, it, is, it is so fulfilling to be amongst other artists and my, my colleagues who I just hold so near and dear to my heart on and off stage, but that we get to return to, you know, our, our, our safe space, our home, and welcome uh, an audience of people who into our home who are excited, just as excited to be there uh, as we are on the stage. And that combining of power, if you will, is pretty overwhelming <laughs> and pretty magical. So there's just something so beautiful about this moment, the historic nature of it all. And what was it like for you emotionally and creatively when you stepped out on that stage to perform again in front of a live audience. It's incredible. It's incredible, you know, not only to be in a show, uh, but to also get to see other shows. I, uh, while we were rehearsing for The Lion King, I got a chance to see a couple of shows that were already open. And I was just thinking, oh, you know, I have this opportunity. Let me go see a show. And what I was surprised by is that I got emotional. And I'm not, I'm like, I'm not that person. But I got emotional just seeing artists on stage live doing their thing. And I imagine that that's what audiences are feeling when they come to see Aladdin or they come to see The Lion King, is that they're getting to experience the magic and the artistry in a live form instead of, as we said, on the couch or in their home. Uh, it's just the connection and the energy that we share together is, is magical. And you can't get that uh, from your home. Oh goodness! I mean, it is it, really overwhelming. I have a I have the very um, a beautiful uh, task to open the show uh, in in Aladdin, and the first person you see on the stage is the genie when the curtain comes down, and there's the genie talking to the audience, addressing the audience, and that connection starts right away. And so for me, it was uh, it was it was like a dream, you know, I had, I had dreamt of, of that moment for uh, months, many, many months, again. like what that would feel like again, to have that moment and that connection and the reaction and the response and um, just the pure electricity that happens between uh, the in- intimacy of an audience and uh, being in a live theater. So uh, it was, it was, it was to say the least magical and I'm, I am, so thrilled, but it gets to happen every night. <laughs> so that is that is for me what what I was so so looking forward to. But also knowing that people were there, feeling safe, 
um, you know, feeling like they are, that they can be in the theater. They don't have to worry. Um, that they can sit there and enjoy themselves and escape um, and, and, and visit one of, you know, these big, iconic shows. I just listening to Michael talk about his moment because for some reason I had forgotten that I also dreamed of what it would feel like, like just imagining, oh, my goodness, what would the audience be like and what would it be to be back on stage and the lights and everything. So um, it was it was so much more than I could have imagined. And it's still exciting. It, we've been open now for uh, about five weeks and mm-hmm. the audiences are still so thrilled to be there. And when you're in a show like Aladdin or The Lion King, just to have that responsibility and the opportunity to be someone's first Broadway show is so thrilling, especially after the past 18 months that we've experienced together. It's, it's nice to help someone disappear for two and a half hours and uh, enjoy artistry and, and song and dance and all the things that make us uh, human. And in terms of your performances on Broadway, what have those shows and the characters you portray the genie and Nala meant to you and disappearing into those characters. Oh my goodness. Nala teaches me so much. (laughs) She's so strong. And I feel like uh, he's the person you want to be. So um, it's, I've learned a lot from doing this role. And I think what I appreciate is that uh, the role is such a a role model for young women uh, to be strong in their decisions and to use their voice. And it is my privilege to do that every night. And I hope and aspire to be that way in my real life, too. Yeah, I, you know, we, we both Asia and I are pretty lucky to play such iconic characters. And, you know, they, those characters represent so much for so many people. And I think for me, uh, with the genie, you know, the genie represents uh, it's this entity that is so much bigger than all of us. Um, this, the genie represents love and light, laughter, joy, um, uh, this, this, this zest for life, this wonderment. And, and it is an incredibly beautiful thing to be able to come on a stage. People are waiting to, to see you. They want to love you and they want to be entertained um, by you. And they are just ready. So to, I've learned so much about... Uh, what what you can do with that uh, responsibility as an actor, the power you have when you really let yourself um, escape into this almighty entity that is the genie. And uh, for those two and a half hours, you believing that you can make anything happen for people. You can be um, somebody who is more than just uh, character on stage, but actually embodying joy and love and light and laughter, and that is a blessing, especially as a um, you know as a black man to be able to have that role and be that sort of, of what that represents um, to be able to be the entity of what that is and take on that as a as an actor of color is um, is really really wonderful, and I am I do not take it lightly. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much, both of you, for calling into the show. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank Have you. a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. And more information about attending Aladdin and The Lion King is online at broadway.com. Hello, Arts Express. This is Adam Beach giving you a shout-out. And I'm very much tied into my cultural identity and protecting that. And I find when you look at the non-Indigenous, when they get involved in the traditional aspect of things, they usually 
feel it for a monetary value, whether it's artifacts, whether it's ceremony lodges, sweat lodges, or taking their own interpretation of what a Navajo song should be and, you know, how they should dress and, yeah, protect that. some November holiday season themed music from A Tribe Called Red. And now a special presentation of the Arts Express Playhouse. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. For Halloween season, we bring you a tale of the near future entitled 2121. I only ask the place and time, enough for me to give, some small meaning to the meaningless, and point to having lived. The floor was cold. They shaved my head. I was shivering. At first, I thought I was home, that someone had taken my furniture. But it wasn't so much a room as it was a cube. A cube with luminescent walls with soft blue-green light. I tried to find a way out, but there was none. No doors, no windows, not even a ventilation tube. I threw myself against the walls and banged and screamed, but no one answered me. I slumped back down to the plastic floor of my cell, afraid to admit to myself where I was. I squeezed my eyes tight, afraid that I was going to cry. The wall in front of me slid back in its tracks. I could see a large, shambling man in prison overalls with a nine-digit number tattooed on his forehead. Come with me. What do you want? Just follow me. He turned his back on me and stepped on the moving conveyor in the corridor. I stumbled after him because I was afraid to be alone. I had to know what was happening. Where are you taking me? Don't talk. Follow me. I knew where I was now. There could be no doubt of that. We went up and down what seemed like endless corridors, past row on row of cells, just like the one I had left. You could see into the cells, but the prisoners couldn't see out. Women like me. Men, too. Some of them were sitting in the middle of their cube, staring at nothingness. But most of them were slumped on the floor asleep. I knew one day I would wind up here, and here I was in their most escape-proof extermination center in the world. In here. The guard stepped off the conveyor in front of a heavy chrome door marked adjudications and pushed a button. I moved through the doorway like a schoolgirl. The general manager sat behind a desk. I couldn't help but notice that the wall behind the general manager was completely covered with dozens of large computer monitor screens. 
Sit down. I did as I was told. There was also an assistant. An old woman, digitally recording everything that was said, simultaneously feeding it into the computers. Identity? Caroline Murphy. I said your identity. Caroline Murphy. Do not hold up the proceedings. Time is precious. You were issued an identification number that was imprinted on your forehead at birth. From here, it appears to be 108-303-715. Is that correct? That's the number tattooed on my head. Let the record show subject is hostile. Case of the People versus 108-303-715. You are charged with two counts. One, writing non-essential literature, and two, wasting government time. How do you plead, true or false? I don't understand. You're a clerk in the Commodities Acquisition Department. Have you or have you not written poetry? I shall read a portion of one, see if you recognize it. In my treeless, greenless office, amid the bustling mad despair, I hunger after exile from the chrome and filtered air. Well? It's not a very good poem, is it? Did you or did you not write this poem, true or false? I... it's just something... nothing. Something... I I explain then why this poem was posted on your Zuckerberg 2100 website account. Because I was just... There are many Zuckerberg 2100 accounts with the same name as mine. Please don't insult my intelligence. You know each account has its own characteristics, individual as fingerprints. The NASA facial recognition and iris scanning algorithms confirmed that it was you who were using this account. True or false? True. You're a junior clerk in the Commodities Acquisition Department, level E2. True or false? A junior clerk. Is that who I am? That's what you are. You're a clerk, level E2. No, that's my job. That's what I said. It's my job. It's not who I am. Oh, you like to play with words. But the truth is, it's waste time. The Microsoft Apple text analysis and the Google text phrasing algorithms have identified this as being composed by the same person who posted the previous poem as well. The nights, the work, the clouds, the rains. There's naught to lose but heavy chains. Naught to lose but heavy chains. What did you mean by that? I... nothing. Nothing? Nothing will come of nothing. No one is in chains here. Why would you use chains? Are you in chains? It makes little sense. Chains would be a waste of essential iron and steel. Your writing, on the other hand, has been evaluated as non-essential. But you couldn't possibly have done that. Everything I've written on my terminal, I encrypt. You are not only a poet... You are a stupid one. Do you really think we would allow privacy? You are charged with two very grave counts in this court, writing non-essential literature and wasting government time. How do you answer? I... it's not non-essential. You wrote poetry, did you not? I did. For for over 50 years, poets have been ruled non-essential, as have painters, dancers, and other workers. They once called artists... What do they add to the economy? But why? I don't understand why. It makes no sense. No sense? You write incomprehensible doggerel, a stew of inconsequential words, and you talk of no sense. Don't you feel at all ashamed of yourself? No. I wasn't raised that way. My parents didn't teach me to be ashamed of doing the right thing. I was not going to bring that up, Essie. Might be prejudicial evidence unrelated to your present crime. But since you did bring it up, what about your parents? What do you mean, what about them? According to your file, your father and mother were also criminals. My father was a writer. My mother was a singer. Exactly. Criminals. 
They deliberately and knowingly broke the laws over and over and wasted precious resources with their non-essential activities, which could have gone to needy people. There are sick people out there, suffering people. My father was driven to suicide because he once wrote a book that said, We engage in the humanities to make ourselves more human, and we engage in the arts to extend that possibility to others. I'm sorry. He died. I don't believe the sins of the father should be passed on to the children as judgment. I had a father too, you know. But what your father did was wrong. To encourage a waste of resources, the time, the hours of education and work wasted, wasted, wasted. How can any government condone that? This was his way of helping. But he had no evidence backing it. Can you point to lives saved? Mouths fed, people clothed, factories built because of a poem? Will it stop climate change or irrational tyrants? There's no society that can have people just do whatever they want, whatever they decide is best. How do you plead? True or false? I'm not guilty of anything. I'm innocent. You insist upon imposing on this court the words guilty and innocent. Ancient concepts of legality which go back as far as hundreds of years ago to 2021. In this court, subjects are neither guilty nor not guilty. They are simply essential or not essential. I repeat, are these charges against you true or false? Answer one or the other. I... false. Very well. Clerk, signal the judicial computer that all facts and considerations of this court are now at hand. Submit the subject's work record, fitness report, sanity estimations, IQ, cooperation quotient, potential revenue raising capacity. The general manager's assistant entered the data that was the history of my entire life. They were digesting my life and worth on this earth and estimating in hours and seconds how much longer I'd be permitted to stay. It is the decision of this court backed by the evidence in hand that you are no longer essential or desirable to life on this earth. What? On the 304th day of the year, 2,121, at 4 a.m. Tuesday morning, you will be taken from your cell to the Division of Molecular Disaggregation for processing. Oh, no. It is the decision of this court. You can't condemn a person to die for writing a few lines of poetry. Not for writing a few lines of poetry, but being a poet. At a time when the world is crying out in need for mechanical and technical brains, the best you can do is rhyming words and scraps of paper. Can you possibly imagine the loss to society? It must be apparent that if you had even the least mechanical ability for the service and repair of spaceships or computers. I could try to learn. But you have no mechanical ability. Your aptitude tests show that. Just give me a chance to learn. There is no time. The world needs these skills now, not a year from now, decades from now. But all I want is to live. We all want to live. Who doesn't? That is the whole problem. The function of this court is to weed out the people who are not essential for the continuation of life from those who are. Artists, actors, musicians, and poets are simply not essential. You have been found to be a poet. I appeal to the mercy of the court. There is no mercy in a binary situation. Oh, just give me another chance. Just one. I am one person struggling to exist. And you think I am not struggling as well? We're all struggling. Do you think I don't struggle every day? Getting here, making decisions, having people rely on me? Let's grow up. Let's be adults, shall we? Your childhood is over. You may think that you have a very lovely mother and father, but you're a grown-up now, responsible for your own actions. I once asked my mother if poetry were necessary. And she was shocked I would even ask such a thing. She said, of course it's necessary. When people are thrown into prison, what do so many of them do? 
They write, recite, memorize poems. It's what gets them through it all. It's what she did. Do you think it will save your life? I don't think so. It didn't save hers, did it? Number 108303715, you are wasting the court's time. I have many more cases to deal with today. As you stand now, you are a drain on our resources. In exactly 20 days from now, you will contribute to them. Case dismissed. Order some tranquility gas for her. Wait. Everyone is granted one last request. What is it? I want to spend my remaining days conscious. You should request tranquility gas. Time goes by much faster, and then the end is not so painful. I want to spend my last days conscious. Conscious? Why? So that I can write. Write? Yes, write. I wouldn't have to have a computer in my cell. Just a pen would do. I know how to use a pen and some paper. I know you have no official power to grant me this. But I'm asking one last request as one human being to another. Very well. Orders will be left that a paper and pen be left at your disposal. Thank you. You may spend your last remaining days on Earth, conscious and writing gibberish poems, if that's what you choose. Next case. I was taken back to my cell, but I had a plan, as meager as it was. I hoped to dig under the rubber plastic on the floor of my cell with the point of my pen. But I dug at it, and dug at it, and couldn't even scratch it. For what must have been five days, I studied the prison routine in hopes of running out of my cell door. But of course, that too was impossible. It was impossible to wait near the door, because the guards could see you waiting there, and would not open it until you were well back in the center of the cell. On what must have been the tenth day, I started to have hallucinations. People began to appear in my cell and chat with me. I saw Emily Dickinson. I spoke to Walt Whitman. I sung with Joni Mitchell. To stave off madness, I picked up the broken stub of my pen and began to write feverishly. I wrote a poem to a woman I had seen once when I was 14. And then I wrote about the last blade of grass I had seen. I was completely caught up in the joy of writing. I was caught up in the art of it. I felt as if I were on an express train, writing about all the things I could remember until I lost all track of time. In place. Oh no, it isn't time. I still have 20 days left. 20 days, he said. No, calm down, miss. I'm not here for that. You still have two days to go. What do you want? To talk? May we speak? He didn't come all the way in, but stood in the door. I didn't know if he was doing it on purpose, but he seemed as if he were standing with his back to the camera, blocking the camera's view of me. He was a very old man with mottled parchment skin. His guard uniform hung on him like elephant skin. Who... who are you? I'm the night duty guard. What do you want? Oh, just, uh, talk for a bit. I've never seen you before. Maybe not, but if you'll excuse me, I've seen you. Every night I've seen you, and I look over my shoulder, reading the things you write. And then I'm on duty while you're asleep. You read my poetry? I did. I haven't read any poetry besides yours in 50 years since it was banned. And not useful, they said. Yeah, you got away with words. Thank you, I think. Uh, That's all right. There's one poem you wrote, Night Before Last. Which one? The one about a person who's going to die and doesn't know why. Would you mind reading it for me? Okay. In the monumental silence of a long and pointless strife, I'm pained at my reluctance to let go this last of life. I only ask the place and time enough for me to give 
some small meaning to the meaningless and point to having lived. I like that. Some small meaning to the meaningless. How would you like to get out of here? Are you crazy? I don't think so. No one gets out of here alive. Guards do. But I'm not a guard. You could be. Now I know you're crazy. You could be. If you put on my clothes, my uniform, my hat. They'd still recognize me by the number on my forehead. That's what gave me the idea. Look at your number and look at mine. 108-808-715. Only the eights are different. Yes. We could take that pen of yours and make your threes look like eights. But you're an old man. I'm a middle-aged woman. They would recognize the difference immediately. No, they wouldn't. The only one who sees me is the guard who relieved me, and he's unhappy gum. (laughs) The only thing he looks at is my number. As long as that's right, he's happy. He couldn't tell you what I looked like if his life depended on it. But why? I don't know why. Maybe I just like poetry. Maybe because I'm going to die anyway. (laughs) Look, Look at me. I'm... 110. Yesterday, I read where they kind of start eliminating everybody over 102. They call us their legacy staff. It will probably be law before the year is out. But that's still a year to live, maybe more. A year of what? I can't smell anymore. My taste buds are gone. My eyes are crap. My hands and feet are always cold. That's not the real reason, is it? No. Then what is? I have a granddaughter about your age, Leia. She used to write and paint when she was young. Of course, we had to discourage it after the banning laws came in. She made a portrait of me and I had to get rid of it. Her poetry was confiscated. She could no longer speak publicly. We had to beg for her life. It would make me feel good to know that they haven't stamped out the desire for poetry completely. Well, what do you say? Are you willing? I'm stunned. I have no right. It would be dangerous for you. They wouldn't let you live. This is not living, Miss Murphy. You know my name? Oh, you talk in your sleep. Caroline Murphy. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, But what is your name? 108-808. No. James. James... E. Randall. It's been a long time since anybody's asked me that. James. You can call me Jim. My dad did. Now, Miss Murphy, listen carefully. I have important things to tell you, and I can't stand here much longer like this without them getting suspicious. He spent the next few minutes explaining his job to me, cross-questioning me to be sure I remembered it right. His job was simple, mostly just pushing buttons. The difficult part would be finding my way out of the huge prison without looking suspicious, and getting off the overhaul transport at the right stop to find his granddaughter Leah's home. When he was convinced that I had it right, he left, promising to change places with me the following night. I was almost afraid to believe him. The hours of what was to be my final night on Earth crept by... The day had been bad enough, but the night was worse. A hundred times I decided the night was over. That it had all just been a sadistic trick by the old man so he could watch the agony of my final hours on Earth to pass the time. 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 3.30. 
I was just about to beat against the walls and scream when... Quick, quickly, help me out of these coveralls. I thought you wouldn't come. I had to wait until the end of the watch so they wouldn't get suspicious. How much time do I have left? About 20 minutes. There's no one on the front desk watching the monitors. The day guard will be coming to relieve me soon, so hurry, will you? Where's your pen? Here, here it is. No, no, hold your head still. Change these threes to eights. There. Now remember, stay on the overhead transport until you get out of the burrow. My granddaughter is the next stop after that. Oh my gosh, I just realized. How will I get on the transport without people staring at this ridiculous guard uniform? Miss Murphy, it's October 31. Halloween. No one will notice your costume. Acting. I don't... I don't know what to say. Don't say anything. Just say goodbye before I change my mind. At best, courage is a quicksilver thing. Goodbye. And thank you, Jim. Miss Murphy, one more thing. The new guard keeps watch over a panic switch that's in a locked box in the alcove by the front desk. It was meant in case of enemy capture of the facility to destroy it. The passcode is, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. I don't expect you to have an opportunity to activate it, but if somehow you do, perhaps we can all start over again. Good luck, Miss Murphy. Quick, close the door. I did as I was told, and I watched as Jim gave me a worried look and took up his position in front of it. The clock on the board said ten minutes to four in the morning, ten minutes before I was supposed to be terminated. I walked down the corridor rapidly in my new outfit and saw the new guard in front of me. How's it going? Huh? I said, how's it going? Everything quiet? Oh, fine, fine. I recognized him as a guard who was to relieve Jim. For a minute, I was afraid he'd recognize me as his eyes drifted across my face. But they flicked up to my forehead to check my serial number, and he resumed his steady, quiet chewing. I came in a little early. You, you can never tell about the overhead transport when it's going to get jammed up and crowded. Yes, things are a mess. Mm, trouble in cell number 995. Cell 995. That was my cell. The one I just left. That meant that Jim was probably banging on the walls. I see cell 995 is uh, scheduled for termination this morning. <laughs> she probably lost her nerve. Uh, they should make them all stay under tranquility gas while they're here. Makes them easier to handle that way. You'd better go down and see what the situation is. Oh, and while you're there, just give camera 995 on the wall their return. It's got all pushed out of alignment for some reason. I, I can't see a thing. I walked down the hall, feeling the guard's eyes on my back. I didn't dare argue with him. I knew it was all over. I could see Jim beating on the walls of his cell beyond the transparent plastic walls, screaming soundlessly. He had changed his mind. He wanted to live. In a minute, he would be running down the hall shouting for help, and in a few minutes I would be dead. I raised my hand to break the electric circuit. Oh, thank goodness you're here. I was afraid you wouldn't come back. You, you took the poems with you. I couldn't remember that special one. Please, all I can remember is I only ask the place and time. I can't remember how it ends. I only ask the place and time enough for me to give 
some small meaning to the meaningless, and point to having lived. That, yes, that's it. Thank you. Now go. Go. Caroline, don't forget the panic switch. Enough for me to give some small meaning to the meaningless and point to having lived. been listening to 2121 adapted and produced by Jack Shalom the cast featured Mary Murphy as Caroline Murphy Rick Tooman as the guard Julius Hollingsworth as the general manager and myself Jack Shalom as James and the music is Hope of Rebels by Kojiro Miura we all wish you a happy Halloween from Arts Express with host Prairie Miller That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.